Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including gathering times and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Brian Candelo. Good to see you here this morning. For those watching online, so glad you could join us that way. And just maybe my daughter's watching online, and just maybe it's her birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. Uh, My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I uh, oversee children and youth and young adults, um, diapers to diplomas, if you will, and beyond. And uh, this past week, you may have received a phone call from someone involved with student ministry. Every year we do this as a fundraiser. We call it Sweat. And I just want to thank you for your generosity. The workday was yesterday. And so we got some pictures of some of our students making Salem a better place to live. And if you did not get called and would still like to give, you're amazing. Uh, you can come talk to me or you can just go online and find that way to give. All that money goes to retreats and missions so that we can send students to those places. And also want to let you know that last week we had our annual meeting and I hope you were able to be involved in that. And at that we had some voting that took place and everyone on the ballot was unanimously voted in. So thank you for doing that. We just want to take a minute to pray for leadership here at Salem Alliance. So would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you uh, for all those who serve around this place. We thank you for those who lead in this place. And I pray that you would just grow them in wisdom and understanding and discernment. That, uh, Jesus, you would be glorified. That all of this would be done so that Salem could be a city at peace with God. So we pray for the leaders of this church that you would pour into them and they would pour out to us. We also pray as we open your word today that you would just make it real and alive and Holy Spirit, you would move in this place in your name. Amen. Amen. When I was a kid, my parents took my brothers and I to some absolutely glorious places. Oftentimes, they would take us out into nature for several days so that we could see the beauty of God in nature. Now, never camping, mind you, because my parents loved us. Um, and kidding, not, not kidding. Yes, uh, but we'd oftentimes go. And after a while, though, after several of these trips out into nature, the family joke became the phrase rocks and trees. As in, every time we go on vacation, all we ever see are rocks and trees. Rocks and trees. We could be standing on the precipice of a cliff overlooking a gorgeous valley full of God's beauty, and we would turn to my parents and be like, rocks and trees. It's just rocks and trees. And then we'd beg them to go to some place truly glorious like McDonald's, right? And you've seen this happen. You've seen young families on vacation at beautiful places, and the kids are just completely absent. And and we know that it's not just that the kids are completely absent. Oftentimes, it's the adults that are absent as well. And you've all seen scenes like this where out in nature, and everybody's just entranced by the cell phone. You're like, look around you. Look what's going on. And yet, that's kind of all we can see. It happens to others. It happens to us. Somewhere along the line, the glory just loses its glory. And not just with nature, but also with the one who created nature. 
The glory can use, lose its glory. You see, we can kind of begin our journey with God in this great space and experiencing God's glory and then just kind of slip into this disinterested, detached, apathetic, indifferent kind of attitude as we just kind of slowly drift. And so what do we do when that happens? How do we regain this proper perspective How does the glory still remain glorious? Because the reality is that this big idea is what we're going to talk about, that God's glory is the goal of all things. God's glory is the goal of all things. And so how do we keep that central in our lives? We can't overstate the importance of God's glory. The glory of God is addressed in every major biblical section. It's related to every major biblical doctrine. It's interwoven throughout the biblical story. As a matter of fact, it's so central to scripture that the Bible, in some sense, is just the story. It's the drama of God's glory. And so what is it really? What is the glory of God, and how do we kind of retain that? How does the glory remain glorious? We're kicking off a new series on the book of Ezekiel. And so if you have your Bibles, you can get a jump. We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 1. Would love for you to turn there. We're going to read quite a bit of scripture today. Ezekiel is a wonderfully fascinating book with admittedly some unique, we'll just say unique, visions and prophecies. Some early rabbis taught that their students couldn't read the book in its entirety until they were 30 years old. And here we are. We're going to go for it, and if you're under 30 in the room, woo! Okay. Now, the book of Ezekiel, it, uh, it kind of follows the same pattern as many of the Old Testament prophetic books, and you can kind of see this pattern. We'll just put it up here on the screen. First of all, we see people who've broken a covenant with God, and they need to repent. That's usually where it begins. And then the people refuse to repent because they're drifting and the glory's lost its glory. And so judgment comes. Something happens to them to get their attention. There's usually a huge wake-up call. But throughout it all, there's hope for restoration and forgiveness. And we see this pattern again and again and again in the Old Testament. And as we read Ezekiel, we are going to see this pattern. We're going to see that there is hope And there is restoration, and we're going to see the goodness and the glory of God. So, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, it's an oddly, honestly, it's an oddly specific verse. On July 31st of my 30th year, while I was with the Judean exiles beside the Kabar River in Babylon, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now, let's talk for just a minute about how we get to verse 1. You see, throughout the Old Testament, we see God unfolding a plan so that all people will know him. And what he does is he introduces himself to a guy named Abraham. And from Abraham, we get the nation of Israel. And so the Old Testament kind of follows that narrative throughout. And this is all part of God's plan for us as well. But we see Israel in slavery, and then they get out of slavery, and they get to the promised land, and then they establish themselves as a kingdom with an on-again, off-again relationship with God. And then eventually the kingdom splits in half, and we've got the north that's Israel and the south that's, that's Judah, and 
these kingdoms began to drift. They stopped reflecting the glory of God. And as a result of their disobedience, they were conquered. They were conquered by other nations. And so the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, and the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon. And that's where we get our story. The southern kingdom of Judah, conquered by Babylon and taken into exile. And Ezekiel is one of these exiles. Ezekiel, who was training to be a priest. His father was one. He's roughly 25 years old. He gets taken into exile. And then five years later, when he's 30, when he would have begun his priestly duties, he receives this vision. And this is the beginning of Ezekiel's prophetic calling. He's called to be a prophet to his own people. He's called to be a prophet to those in exile. The book is specifically for those who have been taken from their home and moved to Babylon, a people who would have felt disoriented and disappointed and out of place and alienated. All the familiar stabilities of community life were taken away. And they would have felt far from home and obviously far from God in that situation. And they would have been asking questions. Questions like, how did we end up here? And is there any hope of us going home? And what's interesting is the whole arc of Scripture, the whole narrative of Scripture is really set up to answer those two questions. For them and for us, how did we get here? And is there any hope of going home? You see, Ezekiel's a message for us as well. It's written very specifically to a certain time and place. But it's for us because we feel the same things. And we ask the same questions. We feel disappointment. We feel resentment. And maybe our homes haven't been taken away, but our hopes have been taken away. And we're asking questions like, where was God? Or where is God? Why does it feel like he's absent? Is, is God really good? Can he really make a difference? Is he that powerful? And what we'll see in the book of Ezekiel is that in the midst of exile, there's hope. In the midst, midst of exile, God is on the throne and his glory is on display. He sees all, he knows all, and nothing can stop him. And so that's kind of the background of the book of Ezekiel. But I want to read the vision. I want to read the vision that Ezekiel gets. And I hope that we can enter into the beautiful imagery of this passage. Because every bit of this vision proclaims the glory of God. Now, there's a lot going on here. And I know that this was a moment where Ezekiel was like, I did not see that coming. So we're going to read, starting in verse 4. As I looked, I saw a great storm coming from the north, driving before it a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with brilliant light. There was fire inside the cloud, and in the middle of the fire glowed something like gleaming amber. From the center of the cloud came four living beings that looked human. Now, we're going to read a description of what they look like, and so human here, honestly, is a very loose term. They looked human, except that each had four faces and four wings, and their legs were straight, and their feet had hooves like those of a calf and shone like burnished bronze. But they looked human. <laughs> right. 
Under each of their four wings, I could see human hands. So each of the four beings had four faces and four wings, and the wings of each being touched the wings of the beings beside it. And each one moved straight forward in any direction without turning around. And each had a human face in the front, and the face of a lion on the right side, and the face of an ox on the left, and the face of an eagle in the back. And the living beings looked like bright coals of fire or brilliant torches, of, and lightning was flashing back and forth among them. And this is just the first part of this vision. Whoa. Here we go. And, and I want you to notice Ezekiel's language here. Because he keeps saying things like, it, it looked like, or it seemed to be. And what he's really saying is, I have no idea. All I have are the words that I know and the concepts that I know. And I'm trying to place them over something that I really can't even describe. He's at a loss for words. He's trying to describe the indescribable, and this is a vision that is just beyond description. So let's, let's keep going. As I looked at those beings, I saw four wheels touching the ground beside them, one wheel belonging to each, and the wheels sparkled as if made of burl. All four wheels looked alike and were made, of, made the same, and each wheel had a second wheel turning crosswise within it. The beings could move in any of the four directions they faced without turning as they moved, and the rims of the four wheels were tall and frightening, and they were covered with eyes all around. Of course they were. And when the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them, and as they flew upward, the wheels went up as well, and as they flew, it says their wings sounded like waves crashing against the shore, or like the voice of the Almighty, or like the shouting of a mighty army. And so we've got these four beings, and if you can kind of picture them maybe in like a box form, right? Because all of their wings are kind of touching the other wings, so each one's facing a different direction. It doesn't even matter because they have faces that are facing every direction, and there's wheels, and there's a whole bunch of eyes, and Ezekiel's like, whoo! And then, spread out above them was a surface like the sky, glittering like crystal. So above them, there's this platform. And on this surface was something that looked like a throne made of blue lapis lazuli. Absolutely, you can look it up later. And on this throne, high above was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. And as we read earlier, man is loose here. <laughs> resembled a man from what appeared to be his waist up. He looked like gleaming amber flickering like a fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame shining with splendor. All around him was a glowing halo like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. And here's where I wish Ezekiel was not only a prophet, but a painter. I wish Ezekiel chapter 1 came with illustrations so that we could see this. Now, a lot of people have attempted to paint this. Here's just a few of these. And you, how are you going to grasp that? I love how big his eye is in that picture because that's how we'd all be. Whoa! And if you're a painter in the room, I'd commission you to paint this. I would love to see your work on this. We just can't wrap our arms around it. And honestly, I've read a lot about this passage in the past several weeks. 
I've done word studies. I've read commentaries about the symbolism and the meaning of this vision. And maybe the four faces mean intellect and majesty and strength and swiftness, or maybe they don't. And maybe all the eyes mean omniscience and the wheels mean omnipresence and probably, but that really isn't the point. You see, we're not meant to fully understand this vision because we can't fully understand the glory of God. It's just too much. And it's less about us understanding the specifics of this vision and more about us experiencing the glory of God. And so we want to take just a few minutes and kind of break down what glory is as best we can because the first thing I would say is this. The glory of God is beyond comprehension. I mean... He says, this is what the glory of God looked like to me, and and I can't, all I can use is the words I have and the concepts to describe it, but it's so far beyond that. I mean, what is glory? We see nature and we, oh, that's glorious, and or we say that glory is the prize for victory, or some people just walk around and they say, glory, and we don't really even know what that means. But what about the glory of God? Because we read about the glory of God. We sing about the glory of God. I heard a pastor say earlier in this service that the glory of God is the goal of all things, if you were paying attention. But what is it? What is the glory of God? In some ways, defining glory is like defining beauty. It's not so much that we can say what it is, but more that we can see what it is. It's like if you tried to define the color blue to someone who had never seen blue before. You'd be like, well, it's, um, it's like bluey, bluish. It's like cool. Think cool, but like in a color. I don't, I don't really know how to say that. That's what it is. It's beyond comprehension. But we're going to throw a stick at it anyway so that we can wrap our arms around it a little bit. And so in the Bible, in the Hebrew, which is the language of the Old Testament, glory means weight. It literally means something that is heavy. So then it means honor and distinction and importance. It's, it's someone's gravitas. In the late 1980s, I had the opportunity to go into the Los Angeles Laker locker room after a game that they had won at the last second, and it was just weighty to me, being in the presence. Now, honestly, it's still a locker room. Let's not like over-glorify it. It's still like, this is an odd place to like meet people, but... I was sucked in by the gravitational pull that was the Lakers and the coach and meeting all these people. And so I was just struck by, oh, wow. And that's kind of a little bit of what they're trying to say there. It just means weight. It's, it's something that's heavy. It's something that, that kind of pulls you into the gravitational pull. Now, in the New Testament, the, the language is Greek and the word is doxa, which is where we get doxology. So it means something that's worthy of praise. So it's, it's heavy, it's, it's important, it's worthy of praise. And that's a good starting point. I want to give you two more definitions from, from two pastors that I really like. The first is this. The glory of God is the combined magnitude of all of his attributes and qualities put together. And I love that. It's, it's all of the indescribable superlatives that make God who he is. It's the sum total of his being. It means he has all of these things in greater quantities than we could ever imagine. All of what makes God God, that's his glory. 
And then the second definition takes it just a little bit further. The glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. So it's, it's taking all that God is, all of these amazing things, and it's putting them on display. His perfection, his power, his creativity, his greatness, his goodness, his kindness, his compassion, and on and on and on. It's all of these things that make God God put on display so that we can see and understand. That's the glory of God. And that's why it says in Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the glory of God. And even understanding this, though, the glory of God is still beyond our comprehension. Because God's not subject to our understanding. We can't fit him in a neat and tidy box. We cannot figure him out. And that's a good thing, right? Because if we could figure out God, he wouldn't be God. He would be something that we've kind of created in our heads. Now, that's not to say that we can't understand anything about God. There's a lot that we can understand about God, but there's a tremendous amount of things that are just so far beyond us, and this is sometimes the part of God that we struggle with. We sometimes struggle with the glory of God, the part of God that we can't understand, the part of God that confuses us, and we say, like, I, I could never worship a God who would do this. Or I could never worship a God who would allow this. And us saying that is really saying we don't want God in all of his glory. We want a God that fits with our understanding. We want to take all of this that's God, all of this infinite, indescribable, limitless God, and we want to try and fit him inside our brains and be like, yeah, that's the God I want. It's like saying, I'm going to take the whole ocean, and I'm just going to fit it inside this water bottle. That's the God I want. It's not going to work. We can't do that. The glory of God is beyond comprehension, and that's a beautiful thing. And the next thing that we see in this vision is the glory of God is boundless. And Ezekiel would have been sitting there with this vision asking a whole lot of questions, mind you. There's probably a lot going through his brain. But one of the questions he would have asked is, what is the glory of God doing here in Babylon? Because the glory of God is supposed to be back in Jerusalem. And it's supposed to be in the temple. But all of a sudden now, it's on wheels. The glory of God's on wheels with a whole lot of eyes. And the temple is mobile. It can go anywhere at once. It has no limits. The glory of God is on the move, and it's moving with them in exile. You see, God goes where he pleases, and it pleases him to be with his people. We are bound by a lot of things. We're bound by our power and our intellect and our resources and our creativity. But God has all of those things in infinite abundance. And so he's bound by nothing. And so when we feel like we're out of the reach of God, we aren't. We're never out of the reach of God. It would have been so mind-blowing for Ezekiel to see this and be like, wait, God, your glory is here. And absolutely, his glory was there. Because the glory of God is boundless. It's beyond comprehension. It's boundless. And the glory of God demands a response. 
And we see that Ezekiel responded in verse 28. He says, this is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. And so after all of this vision, he says, when I saw it, I fell face down on the ground. When I fall it, saw it, excuse me, it just knocked me on my face. And this is the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Because the glory of God, it demands a response. And when we encounter the glory of God, quite honestly, it, it humbles us. We notice our own smallness and weakness and impurity. It takes away our self-righteousness. It takes us out of the spotlight. And, and that's a good thing because we're not the stars of this movie. Oftentimes, we think we're the star of the movie, and everybody else is just the extra in our movie. You're all just extras in the Brian movie. But that's not it. Isaiah 6 says the whole earth is full of God's glory, not our glory. And so it humbles us and it causes us to have this posture of surrender because maybe there was a point where we wanted to use God as a tool to get things for ourselves. But no longer. We don't want to use God to get goods. We just want God. It's when we can say things like, your will be done, not mine. When we've encountered the glory of God, we surrender, we're humbled. It demands a response. And so how will we today respond to God's glory? Let me just give two things in closing real quick. I think the first is just a simple and profound prayer. We can just pray, show me your glory. It's the same prayer that Moses prayed in Exodus chapter 33. Show me your glory. When we're facing difficulties and problems and exile, when we feel like we're drowning, we don't need another perspective on our problems. We need a proper perspective on the glory of God. We need to see God in all of his bigness and grandness and kindness and compassion and power. We need to see that fresh and new. And I think that's important. And praying this prayer is one of those ways that the glory can remain glorious in our own lives. God, continue to show me your glory. And we see glimpses all the time, whether we notice or not. And nature is one of them. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. It means that, that the heavens just shout about God's glory, and the sun does, and the moon does, and the clouds, and the sky, and the countless stars, and infinite space all shout about the glory of God. And our lives were also meant to shout about the glory of God. So we want our eyes to be opened up, and just as the heavens shout, we were created to reflect the glory of God. And so how can we better do that? How can we reflect God's glory? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, so all of us who have had the veil removed, all of us who have put our faith in Jesus, all of us who see things like they truly are, can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. We were created to reflect the creator. Now, we all reflect something. Our lives reflect something to other people. But honestly, usually we want to reflect ourselves. That's what we want to do. We want other people to see like our, 
our power and our position and our possessions and, and these things then become kind of the center of gravity in our lives and, and they became, they, they're heavier, they have more weight than the things of God and eventually what happens is we just are looking at ourselves and we want to bring glory to ourselves. But that's not how we were created to be. You see, when we start living into that, the more that God is the center of gravity in our lives, the more we get, begin to reflect him in a way that's healthy. And we want to reflect God in a way so that others can see, brighter even, so that it impacts other people. We want to reflect the glory that is God. That's how we want to live. That's what we are created to be. And what does that look like, reflecting God's glory? If, if God's glory is just all of those characteristics, if it's his kindness and his compassion and his generosity, then that's what that is for us as well. It's us holding babies in omni so other people can go to church. It's us interceding for other people when they need us to do that. It's us taking food to our neighbors when something happens. It's listening to people that no one else listens to and on and on and on. This is life on mission. This is us reflecting the glory of God because that's what the world needs. That's why it says above our doors, you're not leaving the church because you are the church. That's what our community needs. They need to see the glory of God because the glory of God is the goal of all things. And so whatever we do, whatever we are, we do it all in the name, in the glory, for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this vision. Thank you just for how indescribable it is, how amazing it is, how unique it is. And I pray that more and more you would show us your glory. The more and more we would just see clearly who you are and help us to reflect that to the world. I pray that the world sees you in us. And so I pray that you would give us courage to live that way, courage to reflect you. That we would continue to point to you, Jesus. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.